Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hi, my name is Charlie. I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank my friend Bob for inviting me to speak here again, and it's really an honor to do this, and I also want to warn you against any unnecessary movement while I'm up here. Um, I'm, I'm pretty calm usually, but I'll lash out if I see anything looks uh, that I deem to be unnecessary. Um, that said, uh, Bet you newcomers are glad you got here early and got a seat in the back of the room. Um, I'm uh, I'm an alcoholic. I don't have any outside issues. Um, I'm I'm not apologetic about it. Um, I knew drugs were there. I saw them. I just didn't give, give a damn, you know. Uh, I um, drank because alcohol really solved my problem, big time. Um, it's it was always the uh, court of first resort for me when I had problems. It was always, uh, I've heard people say, you know, I'm, <laughs> it elicits some laughter. People say, well, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, but my drug of choice was cocaine. <laughs> my drug of no choice was alcohol. I had choice over everything else. Uh, alcohol, <laughs> alcohol I had no choice over. It just seemed to do the trick, and, and anything else you put in front of me was sort of, I, I just wasn't, I was sort of indifferent to it. I tried it. It, uh, it got me loaded, but that wasn't why I was there. Um, and I'm not anonymous in this program either. I appreciate what Rich had to say. Uh, my last name is Carl. First name Charles. I live in Burbank. Uh, I'm, list- I'm listed in the phone book under Charles. So, uh, so in case there are any visitors from Massachusetts who need someone to talk to at 3 in the morning, uh, they won't have to go through all the C's trying to figure out which one I am. Um, I appreciate anonymity. Uh, anonymity is really important in AA, and it's one of our, our most preciously held traditions. However, uh, not amongst each other, because I, I need people, and I need to know where I can get a hold of you, and, uh, and I'm always happy to get phone calls from people from out of town who come into L.A. and want to get to an AA meeting. It's always a pleasure to uh, bring them to a meeting and, and talk to them. Um, uh, I was... <laughs> I was I don't go to the gym very often, as you may well guess, and um, uh, my, uh, <laughs> my kickboxing days are ahead of me, but I, um, <laughs> I was at the gym where I work one morning early, and, and I was watching Good Morning America, and this is just on the subject of, of anonymity, because it just was, was odd to me that... Um, and we talked about this over dinner. I was just listening to Howard Stern the other day, and some famous rock guitarist gets on there. And he's not on the on the Howard Stern show for two minutes, and he breaks his anonymity purposely. Says, "I know AA's. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I've been an Alcoholics Anonymous for so long." That's, you know, okay, thank you for your hearty boy howdy. But um, uh, <laughs> but the uh, there was a guy on Good Morning America. You know the. Last year, when they had that fight at the football, the basketball game, somebody chucked a chair in the stands, and there was a, all hell broke loose, and everybody got beaten up, and and they showed it on TV maybe eight, nine thousand times. Uh, and the guy who threw the chair was on Good Morning America, 
And uh, the person asking him the question said, well, you do have, uh, we checked your uh, uh, legal records, and you do have a, a record of violent outbursts. And he goes, yeah, but, you know, I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous for a year now, and I'm really making some headway on that. And I thought, up until last week, apparently, but... Uh, uh, don't drag me into that chair throwing crap. I mean, uh, I can't, I, I haven't been to, well, I've been to AA meetings where things were thrown, but not chairs. But um, uh, we really cherish our anonymity around here because if, there, if there's anything we don't need, it's one more bad example for the outside world to see and, and roll their eyes at and, and determine that we don't work. Because we do work really well. And uh, we pride ourselves on working with our mouth shut, uh, most of us. Um, the ones who stay do anyway. Um, now that I've preached, um, I'll tell you, <laughs> I, used, I knew so much when I was three years sober. Boy, I knew it. I had it down, man. I was like the Elmer Gantry of the San Fernando Valley. And then um, over the ensuing 20 years, uh, it just leaked out somewhere. Um, I'm just shooting blanks mostly now. I... Uh, I start to hear my own voice, and it sounds like, you know, how you listen to the radio, and there's a talk show, and, and the, the person's hesitating on the line, and the host has to tell them to turn their radio off. That's how I feel right now. I can hear double things. I, I think my host is about to tell me to turn the radio off. But um, I start out slow and rambly, and then I, I build a, a, just a shattering climax, so bear with me for a minute. Um, <laughs> I say I was an alcoholic. I think I, I got there. And I, um, Charlie, thank you very much. Uh, our operators are waiting. Um, I uh, hate people as much as I did the last time I was here. That's been my, my big problem. I um. I'm just not wild about the human race, pretty much, uh, in general. And, and I have this alcoholic problem in which I demand their approval at the same time, which gives your life a sense of torque, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> hate them, love me. Hate you, please love me and approve. Hate you because you love me. But now I feel it's, it's, it's endless. It's the hamster wheel of alcoholism. And... Uh, and I felt that way ever since I can remember. I've always been um, conflicted in that area. I've always, I was an only child. Uh, I was used to being alone. I was comfortable being alone. I didn't have to share with anybody at my house. Um, my parents loved me, which was disarming. <laughs> because... I know after after being around a while that you can get up a good head of steam when people don't like you, you know, and they or they they are you can tell they they give you crap and you can smack back. But it's really hard when people say we care about you, we want the best for you. Please let us help you. Ew, uh, I don't think get away from me. I don't know what to because there's a deal going on here that I'm not sure what my part of it is, and I I'm afraid, and I would rather you I'd rather not even enter into the contract at all if it's all the same to you. But I did what most of us do and said, I love you too. And um, walked away thinking, what was that all about? And I've all, I didn't say it so much, but I felt it. And I've always felt that way. So I don't know what people want from me. Uh, and usually they don't want anything. They just are trying to be polite and be people. But 
you know how you know how we get and um and I was always a, a loner in school. I never hung out with any one crowd. I always had one friend. And then when that friend got another friend, I felt like I'd been jilted and cheated on, you know. And why do they need another friend? What, am I not enough? You know, I'm not a, what's, What kind of a friend is that, that you go out and get other friends? Um, so then I couldn't trust anybody. And I, I was always, always a low-grade person like the pilot light going for resentment and anger and fear all the time, just driven by fear. I was, I was sitting watching a Batman cartoon video with my son a couple of weeks ago, and the Joker says, Batman's a wimp. And my son looks at me and goes, what's a wimp? And I said, that's someone who doesn't take any action because he's afraid or he feels inadequate, and he lets people push him around in his life, and he never gets anywhere because he won't take any chances. And I thought, ew. Uh oh! <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> I noticed he kind of held his stare a little longer than he should have. Uh, and uh, <laughs> realizing he must have been talking to his mother, but uh, uh, I take that back. That was cheap and low down and not fair. I take that back, but I, uh, but I don't regret it. I, um, but um, no, that's how I lived my life. Was like that always, always afraid to do things, always afraid to step out because I was afraid a that I would fail and b that I wouldn't live up to the potential everyone told me I had, that I was crucified on. You know, that's a tough cross to be lugging around. I know my friend Don G talks about that. It's, uh, Potential is a terrible thing to have, but it's, all, it's also good in the hip pocket because I heard a guy Wednesday night at my home group meeting say that he had potential and he liked that because he always knew he could do it if he wanted to. He just chose not to do it. <laughs> I, I could have done it. I could have gone out for sports. I would have been a great, I'm 6'2". I would have made a decent basketball player. I could have done that. Just chose not to. Uh, I'm not a team player. Really, I'm, if, if basketball was a solo game, I might have tried it. But and if it wasn't competitive, because someone has to lose, and I'm not stepping up for that one. So, um, and then I got out of high school and was was still uh, uneventful at anything. My friends all went off to college. I stayed home. It was a bad thing to do. It was 1968. It was right at the Tet Offensive, uh, and I turned uh, 18 in 1968. And and uh, got a lucky lottery number. You would think someone would take a a lucky lottery number when all the kids in my neighborhood were going to Southeast Asia to war and would take that opportunity to try to leave a mark on the world that was positive. But, and I was going to. (laughs) I just didn't want to then, you know, uh, but I got it right back here. I'm going to pull it out whenever I need to. And, um, so I went right into the record industry. I was a, I was a, a clerk at a music store, and I um, because <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you what I ate that morning, but I could tell you the lineup of the Love and Spoonful in 1966. Uh, all the gray-haired guys are going, "Yeah, dude, I am. <laughs> Me too." <laughs> um, but that was my. I love music. I, I hated everything about the 60s except the music and um, and the girls. I didn't meet many of them, so it wasn't that big a loss. But I, um, <laughs> so I got a lucky lottery number. I'm at this record store. I'm uh, waiting for my moment, you know, to ignite. And uh, 
some people came in who were sort of the troublemakers that I'd gone to high school with and asked if I wanted to go to a party with them, which was an unusual request in my world because I've never been to a party before. I, I, I'm not a party guy. I don't use party as a verb. Um, <laughs> a party to me is a place where there are people, and I don't want to go re- re- rewind anymore, but I, uh, I just didn't want to go. But my buddy John, my friend du jour, and, um, and I... <laughs> And John said, let's go to the party, come on, and he drove, you know, and, and John was always a rock and roll drummer, always had girls, you know, shinning up his leg, and I was hoping I'd catch some of that, that runoff, you know, <laughs> but um, so I, we went along to this party, you know, we get in this party, and it was exactly what I thought it was going to be, it was a bunch of lowlifes in Santa Ana. <laughs> Someone doesn't know how to follow direction. Uh, either that or I'm, I'm hearing the angels call. Uh, <laughs> your prayers are working. Um, so I went to this party and I'm standing at the party and I got my hands in my pockets and I'm judging everybody because they all are losers and failures in my life. A bunch of people that are all chatting it up and they're all too hip for the room and everybody's a hippie and everybody's half the room's on acid, the other half is drunk and, and they've each half thinks they're having a conversation with the other half, and uh, and they had a mirror ball and, and the MC5 on the stereo, and and I hated every second of standing there. I was my guts were just grinding, and somebody walked by and said, "Here, have a have a beer," and it was a malt liquor, and it was one of those eighty you know those eighty four ounce things that hang down to the ground, you know, and um, or so it seemed. I had this thing, and I thought, what am I going to do with this? Become like you? You know, join the, fe- join the fellowship of failure around here? I don't think so. But I was thirsty. And um, <laughs> so I started to drink this can of malt liquor. And when I got halfway through that can of malt liquor, I realized very suddenly that I've been way too hard on you people. <laughs> In fact... I started to feel kind of fond of you. More than that, I was forgiving. I felt the milk of human kindness running through my veins. I felt joy possibly for the very first time in my life. I mean, real joy. Like the doors, like someone had just pulled the drapes back, opened the door, let some fresh air in, and I felt alive. Better than that. I mean, I transcended feeling alive after about a half can. By the time I got to the bottom of the can, I was feeling like a mixture of David Niven and Errol Flynn and John Lennon all mixed together in this, uh, in this very smooth concoction, you know, uh, which is, was hard for me to pull off when you look like Sherman from the Mr. Peabody cartoons. It's a, it's a stretch. So, uh, But I gave it a go, and I... Um, I was alive, you know. For the first time in my life, I realized that I felt like I was finally present. I was there in the moment where there was, I wasn't worried about all that other stuff that Rich was talking about, about what I think of me and more importantly, what you think of me thinking of me, thinking of what you think of me and, <laughs> and the layers and layers of self-absorption. This booze just took that away for me and I was there. And I don't mean just in the room. I mean, I was the point man for life. And if you're an alcoholic, 
you know where there is as sure as I do. And if you're new and you think I've forgotten where there is after 23 years, guess again. You know, there are guys with 60 years of sobriety in AA. You can ask them, you know, do you remember there? And they'll tell you, I sure do. I remember it as vividly as if it happened this afternoon. I mean, I remember that. Because you don't get relief like that and forget it. It's not just physical relief. It's not like taking aspirin and your headache goes away. It gave me a profound change in my view of the way the world was. And it made me feel as if finally I had found an entry-level place to get into the world. I didn't drink to get drunk and get out of the world. I drank to get there where everything was just about to be great. Maybe 20 minutes and it'll, it'll be there. Because if it was great right now, it wouldn't be worth it. I like that anticipation, you know, that just that joy of, oh, my God, it's happening. It's going to happen. I can smell it. It's in the air like, like orange blossoms. It's going to happen. And, uh, and I got drunk that night. I went into a blackout. I wound up coming out of the blackout, running alongside of John's car, hanging onto the door handle while he was driving down the street. And I was throwing up all over myself and just laughing my ass off. <laughs> I was, I was there, and I am never, and I didn't think about this at the time, and, and if you're new and you're not acquainted with Alcoholics Anonymous, I've got to tell you, what I'm telling you tonight was not occurring to me in real time. It, Alcoholics Anonymous is like, uh, it's, it's like finding the black box of your life after the impact. <laughs> And you get to take it out piece by piece and reconstruct what the hell happened. <laughs> and, and better than that, then you get a recipe of what to try to do differently that I won't ever have to go back and drink again, even though I still, from time to time, want to get there. And I, I remember I, I taught high school when I was sober for a few years, and uh, we had to do a segment on alcohol abuse each year because it was during the just say no years. Uh, yeah, everybody laughs. Yeah, the, uh, I would give this alcohol. Yeah, we had to do it like five minutes a day and just say, okay, we're going to talk about booze today and, and drugs. Let somebody else talk about drugs. Let me call them one of the kids. But, um, but I'll, you know, I give them a little rundown on alcohol. I didn't break my anonymity. I didn't tell them anything about my involvement in AA or the fact that I was alcoholic. I just told them this is what, you know, we were told to tell you. And, and uh, the only kids who were really interested, and I mean really interested in alcoholism and drug abuse, were the kids who didn't have a problem. It was like watching a freak show for them. You mean people dying in the gutter go to a hospital and get better and they go drink leaving the hospital? How does that happen? That's crazy. And they were into it. The ones who didn't care, who acted, you know, would look at their watches and look out the window were the kids who had the problem because I wasn't talking about them, you know. It wasn't, that wasn't going to happen to them. It wasn't going to happen to me either. I'm smart. You know, I'm smarter than my dad. <laughs> sort of. Um, maybe not, but I, uh, that's how I felt. You know, I'm smarter than, maybe I, I consider myself to be smarter than 90% of the public. 
which was a lie because I realized only later that if, you have, if you've got a big forehead and glasses, you can pull off smart really easily. And, uh, uh, but I, I, uh, I drank for 12 years after that first night. I was a blackout drinker. I drank at the Humdinger in Anaheim. I love that place. I love bars. I liked bars for a long time until I found... Uh, I drank at beer bars mostly because that's where all the... All the action was, you know, uh, people changing the jukebox with somebody else's face. <laughs> D5. And, um, <laughs> you're, sitting, you're sitting there going, hey, can you hit that Charlie Rich song again for me? Uh, okay. And when you listen to those really sad ones, and you put, you put two bucks in and play behind closed doors 28 times in a row till someone yanked you outside and started to hit you with a pool cue. Um, <laughs> And, and um, so I just, I compromised everything in my life, you know, and, and, I, and, I was, and it wasn't going to happen to me like it happened to other people. It wasn't going to happen to me like it happened to um, guys that I knew, knew who died. I had a friend in high school, or from high school, who, you know, he got drunk one night, took a whole bunch of acid, stepped out in the road up in the canyons, down the canyons in Orange County, and there was a truck coming, and he said that he could separate his molecules so the truck could go through him and 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 it did um it was the it was the reassembly that he hadn't thought out very well but um you know we've we've all known people like that and and you know what you and i are just a just a whisker away from that same fate we are just one fatal decision away from calling down the gods or whatever it is that the, the randomness of life that makes things happen bad to people like us and not necessarily to us. It happens to people around us and it makes us even more sickened by ourselves because we see people who don't even deserve to have the kind of pain we inflict in their life affected by our alcoholism. And that's exactly what happened in my life. I just cut people off, shut off, disconnected my friendships, disconnected my relationship with my mother, would not even drive down the, the 35 miles to see my dad when he was dying of cancer because I couldn't get out of the, uh, I found it difficult to get out of the ore house in Santa Monica, you know? Because the pain of facing the reality of my father dying was too hard and I will drink and then when I feel better, then I'll go down and see him. Until my mother finally called and said, I, you've got to come see him. He wants to see you. And I, I, I you know, I agreed at that point very, very, you know, helpfully uh, as I saw it, very selflessly to go down and, and deign to visit my dying father. Uh, and, you know, that's how I lived my life. And then I, when he died, I felt guilt and shame and embarrassment and, and a sense of, of futility. And I didn't know where it was going, so I just suck it in and swallow it. I don't act it out. I just inhale it and suck it down into my fiber and put it into every cell of my body. And then the alcohol helps wash it all over. It's like repainting a condemned house. You know, alcohol for me is just like putting a new coat of paint on all the rotted out wood and all the termite infested insides. I just color it up and dress it up a different way or, or dress up the, the insides of here as to the way things are going to be. Because alcohol always gave me the satisfaction of a job well done without having to do a damn thing, you know. So why not? I'll take care of it later. Right now I just have to feel better. What I really needed was to try to protect myself from the way I really was inside. I think that's what happens to most alcoholics. We, we come in here full of shame, 
degradation, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, sober, not drunk, sober. And we, we know we've hurt people. And it's not the big dramatic stuff either. It's a little tiny crumb by crumb kind of, of fear that we swallow, you know, and it grows inside of us. And I, I wound up, uh, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell you what happened with a story. There's a guy who drinks in front of uh, this place called Moe's in Toluca Lake. Every day the guy's there. He's drunk on the, on the bus bench every single day. His name is Bob. And my, my life has been beset with guys named Bob and Tom. They're all friends. You know, they're all people that I understand one way or another. And Bob sits on this bench and he drinks and he's, he's, the, he's redder than this carpet. And he is dying of alcoholism. He's been sitting there for five years. He's got all of his belongings in a, in a, uh, a guitar case. He doesn't panhandle. He doesn't threaten anybody. He doesn't act up. He doesn't cause problems. He sits there, he drinks, and he's dying. He's been dying for five years sitting on that same bench, sitting under the sun, burning himself up, and sleeping on that bench. And I'll bet if I came up to Bob with a picture of himself from 30 years, I bet if I took a picture of Bob right now and could get into a time machine and go back 30 years, because he's my age, and go up to him and say, Bob, look at where you are in 2005. Look at you. Don't go down this path. Let people help you. Let people help you to stop drinking so you won't wind up like this. I know he would say it because I know I would say it, and that is, that's not me, and I would never turn out that way because I quit before it got that bad. But you and I, I know I'm speaking for myself, but I can include you because I've heard your stories too, that you and I accommodate this disease. My neighbor across the street from me about a year and a half ago was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. This is a man who was 49 years old, had two toddlers, and his wife had two little kids just like I do. And he's not an alcoholic guy. He's just a regular working-class guy in my neighborhood and a good neighbor. And uh, his name was Tom. And I'm not trying to trivialize what happened to him by using telling you this story, but I think it makes a point that's, that's relevant here, and that is that Tom went in for surgery when he first... Um, after he'd been diagnosed and, and the shock wore down, they offered to do surgery on him, and he went in to have the surgery, and uh, they did it, and I went over to see his wife, and I said, how's Tom doing? And she said, well, he's doing okay. He's recuperating all right. And I said, how, how did the surgery go? Did they get the cancer? And she said, well, they weren't in there to get the cancer. The cancer is in. You can't get the cancer. It's, it's done. What they were doing was they were clearing out parts of good organs and moving things around and cutting away pieces of intestine and pieces of his stomach to give the tumor a place to grow so that he won't be too uncomfortable during the holidays so he can have Christmas with the children before he dies. And they're trying to do that so he doesn't have excruciating pain, those last things. So they have to move away these other organs to allow the tumor to have a place to grow. And I thought, isn't that exactly in in its own way like what we do with alcoholism? We just cut good things out of our way to allow the disease to grow. And we're shocked when we hear about other people having that happen to them. And yet with us, it seems like perfectly normal behavior when we're out doing it. You know, get a smaller apartment and a smaller apartment till I'm living in what's the equivalent of a cell because it's better rent and I don't have to be in such debt with my rent. You know, it's not that. It's because when I get smaller and smaller apartments, I have more control over the environment. I I need some control because I don't have any control over my life at all anymore. 
by the 11th of June of 1981, you know, I was uh, at a meditation retreat and I was going to hang myself there. I was there for, which was certainly, uh, you know, <laughs> grounds for a refund, but I, um, <laughs> I, I, I went there to get spiritual, but you can't get, Rich was talking about spirit and ritual. You can't get spirit ritual in an afternoon at a meditation retreat. It's like you can't stop a head wound with that liquid Band-Aid stuff. Uh, you got to go for some serious uh, treatment. And I'm at this meditation retreat thinking, and I'm hungover, and I'm sick, and I'm peeing blood, and I had been for some time. I was in the middle of my wife had filed for divorce, and uh, which is becoming familiar, and uh, um, and I was a mess. I mean, a physical mess and an emotional mess, and mostly a spiritual mess. And I've been in therapy for two years, and therapy wasn't helping me because therapy doesn't, in my opinion, does not work for alcoholism. It works for a lot of things. It works for other things in my life. It is a fantastic thing, and I'm not a therapy basher, but it doesn't work for the thing that kills me, and that's alcoholism, because, as I understand it, the prerequisite for therapy to work is truth. <laughs> and if you are a practicing alcoholic, and I mean no offense to you who are new, you haven't got a clue what the truth is. We just, you haven't even found the black box yet. Your sponsor will bring that baby to you <laughs> with a bow on it. It comes in the form of what used to be this blue book, you know. But um, I, I was just sick and I wanted to die and I couldn't die. I couldn't kill myself. And I sat there thinking, well, if I can't kill myself and I, I don't want to go on living, what now? There was a man in our fellowship named Gene Duffy who, who died about 15 years ago who was sober a long time. And, and uh, uh, Gene used to talk about, and I understood this immediately. Well, the first time I heard him, he said, there's a point in an alcoholic's life where you're sitting at a bar and someone slides a drink in front of you and you look at it and say, if I drink this, I'm going to die. But if I don't drink this, I'm going to die. Now what? And I hope, you know, that you are in the same spot that I was in with now what? Because there's no logical way to turn at that point. There is no place that my reason or my intellect or my best judgment could turn me. I couldn't face any other way but forward to this thing and didn't know what to do. And I went home from that retreat, and I was, I was absolutely out of my mind. I thought I had lost my mind, and I didn't know what to do. And I thought, I've got to stop drinking. And I... Uh, you know, I've got to stop this, and then I tried to stop. You know, you stop drinking, and you think that it's going to get better. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, I started to get twitchy and detoxy and, and uh, you know, hearing voices in the backseat of my car. I'm driving along in my old beat-up Volkswagen. It looks sort of like me, and, and uh, would hear in the backseat, Charlie. <laughs> you know, and, and the radio would play, and it had been broken for months, and... and, um, and the, the car had no reverse. It was, you know, I had to park it on special. You have to park it on the hill with no car in front of you in the morning so the, or at night so in the morning. These are the kinds of things I mean by moving things around in your life to accommodate. And don't just go get the car fixed because that will eat up your drinking money. Park it on the hill, you know. You don't need reverse. Reverse is overrated anyway. Um, 
And that's exactly how I thought. Everything in my life was like that. I was mailing bills off to the wrong people because in those days we had something that you don't have today. It's called float. Remember float? You write a check to the gas company. You put it in the phone company's envelope. You mail it to the gas company. They look at it and send it back with a nice note saying you accidentally put the the phone company's blah, whatever, and uh, can you please send us a check? you got five days right there, float. <laughs> and then you send them the right check, and you got another three, four, five days float there because they didn't have electronic transfers and all that stuff. You couldn't, there were no ATMs. Thank you, God. Uh, <laughs> I was on a first-name relationship with a lady at Vaughn's, I'll tell you that, but uh, you cashed a check for me. I've written $400 worth of bad checks to my boss, which is really a bad judgment call, I guess, but I... Uh, <laughs> I was told that later. I thought he was just being forgiving, but, you know, he had his hand on the trap door uh, just ready for that next check, and shung, and I was gone. And um, my life was unmanageable. My ex-wife, she was irritated that I'd charged, I'd, I'd run up her credit card. Everybody was mad about something. The Internal Revenue Service, well, they weren't mad because I hadn't ever called them, so how could they be mad? They didn't know that any wrong had been done to them, and if it was up to me, I would have just kept it that way. Then I got to AA and got a sponsor. <sighs> And then that sponsor turned me over to somebody else for my finances because I was a, you know, a disorganized person. Um, I hadn't balanced a checkbook in something like 20 years. And, uh, well, it wasn't that long, but it was close. And um, I just was a wreck. And I got to my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting with my sister-in-law, which is really lame. I mean, some of you came in here in, in an ambulance. Some people came here with the police on either side of you. I love that, believe me. I like you guys who came in here with a leg monitor. You know, that's really cool. I came in here with Debbie. You can't go up to some ex-con and they, hey, what are you in for? I'm I'm here with Debbie. I just say, I had a couple of problems out on the street I had to clear up. I couldn't tell them it was reverse, but I... um, and I gave Debbie a ride. I was five days without a drink, and I gave Debbie a ride, which really was probably the most interesting ride of her life, and, uh, to this meeting because she needed a lift. And, and she asked me if I could give her a ride to a Sunday night meeting. And it was about as big as this one at the Tustin City Hall in Orange County. And in the 25-minute ride to that meeting, she 12-stepped me, and she had 22 days of sobriety. And she passed the message along to me. That's what this is all about. It's not a matter of making people laugh or being funny or cute or or having any wisdom. It's about sharing a message of hope to people that things get better. And at 22 days, she looked remarkably better. She changed. Something had changed in this woman because I had been drunk with her before. And, and she's, you know, and I'm driving her to the meeting. I've got the... I'm the one. It's 120 degrees. I've got a wool jacket, a sweater vest, you know, deerstalker hat, shoulder-length hair, and mustache, sunglasses on, and it's nighttime. I'm twitching away, swatting at imaginary gnats in my peripheral vision, and standing in the back of the room, getting annoyed as hell when people would come up and go, hi, are you new? You know, because that had been the hardest five days of my damn life. I'd appreciate you by not patronizing me and asking me if I'm new. I'm not new. I've been sober for five freaking days. I thought, you know, I thought, so the next time some newcomer tells you they got a couple of days, don't smirk at them. That's the hardest two days. The fact that some people get to the meeting is the hardest thing in their entire life. I have to remember that because I, wow. And I just was 
like, a, like somebody stuck a power blender in my head. Everything was just swirling around, and I couldn't get a bead on anything except those gnats. And they, <laughs> and they weren't even there. And, um, and then I finally, after about, I went to that meeting, and I identified as an alcoholic. Oh, God. Oh, God. I stood up with the other 35 losers and felt, and this should be a tip-off. They all had hospital wristbands on, and I felt less than because I didn't. That should have been on the 20 questions, if you ask me. That and, uh, that and if you, did you ever buy wine based on alcohol content? If you bought port because it was 19% instead of you know, Chablis, because it's 12, you are definitely an alcoholic. Uh, but, you know, I, I got to that meeting, and I listened to the speaker, and I laughed a little bit, and I, I was nervous, and I had to thank the speaker because everybody told me to, and I was, I was malleable. I could, they could have me do all kinds of things, and I was just desperate. I was so desperate. I'd hit that now what so profoundly that I couldn't even hear my own crap, even though I was full of crap because I was looking at everybody in the room going, I'm not like you, not like you, not like you. This is loserama. I still have, remember that potential? Still got it. Got it back here. You know, Once I get this alcoholism thing fired up, you know, once I get the pilot turned up, I'm on my way. And I wish you all the best because you seem like really nice people. But I'm not an alcoholic like you. I only drank to get there. You drank to get drunk. The fact that I got drunk and there is irrelevant. I just... Uh... <laughs> then I was, I was telling Butch this at the meeting tonight. Uh, I, I went... I went to a meeting when I was about nine. I finally got a sponsor, by the way. I've had the same sponsor for 23 years. Uh, he's taken me through the steps like 89 times, uh, <laughs> kicking and screaming. You know, I've got toddlers. You try to get them to do something you don't want, like going to the bank. Come on, we're going to the bank. And my four-year-old would go, no, I don't want to. And then you go, come on, let's go to the bank. And then they just go dead weight and spin. <laughs> That's how I am when my sponsor says, you know, it sounds to me like it's time for you to do another inventory. So, so I got the sponsor, and, I, and he started telling me, you know, go to the meeting early. Go to the meeting an hour early. Shake people's hands and ask them their name. You've got to be kidding me. What kind of therapy is that? I don't even like these people. You know, and most of them are worse than I was, you know. I don't even know where their hands have been. And, uh, and, and. Go get a commitment at all your meetings, and when you're done, do not leave the meeting until amen. That's the last word in the meeting. It's not, we now have our secretary's announcements. It's not, it's time for the traditions. And it's especially not, we have a seventh tradition here where we pass the basket. That's when most people go, God, is it that late? i got to get out of here. You know. These are people who pull 65 bucks of cocaine up their nose in eight minutes but won't drop a dollar in the basket, you know. <laughs> because now they've become fiscally responsible, you know what I mean? Uh, but, uh, and, and if that's you, shame on you. Shame on you for not supporting the very thing that's saving all of our lives together. You can't stay sober on credit. If you've got a quarter, drop it in the damn basket. Nobody's asking for your firstborn, just a couple of bucks. You know, it's, uh, it's not a big damn deal, you know, even in these lean years. And um, so, 
God, I lost my train of thought. Now I'm going to have to start over. <laughs> um, so I had to do all the stuff. Oh, and go out for coffee after the meeting. As if the company you've kept for the last six hours might not be enough to keep you sober. Stay out till one, two, three in the morning with these people and listen to them talk about themselves and drink coffee you don't need so you cannot sleep the rest of the night. Then get up at six o'clock fresh and ready to go do your job the next day. Whoa, what fun that's going to be. Um, but you know what? Every day I woke up, I wasn't hung over. And I would wake up and my sponsor would call me. He was a milkman, so he's up at the crack of dawn. And he's up in the middle of nowhere. And he would phone me at my house in Orange County. And he would make me get out of, you know, are you up? Yeah. Okay, if you said your prayers this morning? Not yet. Get on your knees and say your prayers. I'll wait. I'd, I'd put the telephone down. I'd get on my knees. I'd pray to the bedspread. And then I'd get up and say, I did it. You know, and my prayer was really simple. I would say, God, and I, I do this, this every morning. I get out of bed. But the first thing I do when my feet hit the floor, I say, good morning, Father. Because i got to say good morning to the person that's the most important in my life, really. And I say, good morning, Father. And I talk to God for a few minutes. And my prayer goes something like this. God, please bless my children. Please bless my ex-wife and give her everything in her life that I would want for myself. Please bless my friends and family and watch out for them today. Please bring peace in the world. And, and please let me work your will today. But please be really obvious about what your will is because I will miss it if you're not. And I mean really damn obvious. I don't get subtlety at all. And, uh, and that's my prayer. And I get up and go about my day. And at night I go, thank you. You know, it was a good day. Um, but, uh, but I do that. And, and uh, I started at about eight months sober. I was in a meeting mopping the floors and I paused. And I'm someone who, by nature, as I said, doesn't care for people that much. And I resist, I resist, I resist. And Dr. Paul said one time, you can resist all you want and drown in the current, or you can relax and let the current carry you and see where it takes you. And what I did was I got in the current of my home group, like you, you are in the current of it tonight in your home group. And I let the home group current carry me. And I didn't like it, but I, and I didn't know where I was going, so I was afraid a lot of the time. And I thought that where it was going was wrong and stupid. And what I was being asked to do was dumb. But one night at eight months sober, I was mopping the floor at a meeting, and there were about 120 people lined up to thank the speaker. And my eyes, without even any consciousness of it, my eyes went across that row of people standing there to thank the speaker just as I was pausing for a rest. And it occurred to me right down in here, that I knew every single one of them by name, and I liked them. I liked them without any prompting. And that, to me, is a moment of grace, you know? And I've experienced that a lot, and, I, and not as much as I want. You know, I want more of that. And so I'm active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I take commitments where people ask me to go. And I, you know, do what I'm supposed to do. And I, I have a lot of friends who walk the road with me. I mean, Judy here has been, we got sober together the same year. Judy was a mixed up, angry secretary uh, at, at, our, <laughs> at our Tuesday night book study. And uh, we would commiserate. You know, we just had, we had no sobriety. And we had good sponsors. And we've been, both been sober, you know, this is our 24th year. And uh and I've got a lot of friends in here that I know for years and years and years. Uh, some of you, I don't know you by name, but I know you from being here. And I, and I think about you, and I care about being here. 
and my life has changed. You know, I got, I've had career changes. I've had different things happen to me. I uh, always wanted to be a writer, and I, when I was new, I went up to a writer in our group named Maurice Zolotow, who's since dead, and Maurice was a really well, he, he was a well-heeled writer. He'd written several biographies of people, famous people, and I go up to a shuffle up to Maurice and said, he's talking to another writer in the group, and I, I'm listening, you know. I'm going to soak in some of this because I'm going to be a writer. I work at a bookstore. Why not? And... Um, <laughs> And uh, I, Maurice looks over at me, and Maurice is this big, gruff old guy, New York, talk like this. He looks over, yes? And I said, I'm just listening. I've, I've always wanted to be a writer. And he goes, well, then write something. And he turned around and walked away. <laughs> Where's the love, you know? Uh, so I had to go and do things, you know, and I, I went out and started writing, actually. Imagine that, actually wanting to be a writer and writing something. This is something I could never figure out myself until I started teaching, and then I taught how to write, and then I started writing with my students, and then I got an opportunity to be a full-time writer, and I took it, you know, and, and it, was a, it was a luck of the... It was luck. It was luck and grace, and it could turn tomorrow, because my, my life isn't, isn't contingent. The success and the joy of my life is not contingent on what I do for a living or what's in my bank account. It's what connections I have to other people in the world because that's all I'm going to have when I'm dying. And I'm, I'm going to be gone someday and everybody here is going to be gone someday. And, and all we have left is what we do while we're here with amongst each other and then out there in the world. And I have to have the comfort of my people this is my tribe. You know, I've heard that spoken of a lot of times. But these are my people in here. And I get it. I, I, the first guy I identified with in my heart, my, in, right in my guts, was a guy who'd spent 20 years in, in Folsom Prison. You know, and, and he spoke, and I sat there and thought, I understand everything this guy is talking about, and I've never been arrested. But he wasn't talking about being arrested. He was talking about fear. He was talking about sadness. He was talking about hurting people. And he was talking about destroying his life to drink so they didn't have to feel those feelings. And I got it. I got it big time from Don N. in my group. And, and uh, wow, it just went right through me. I thought if I can relate to Don, I can relate to everybody. It doesn't matter if your gender or your race or your sexual orientation. If you're an alcoholic, we understand because we understand what's at stake. That's why I identify as an alcoholic. I took drugs, but I'm an alcoholic. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and, and I have to know that the person I'm talking to understands what's at stake with me. Because if I'm going to drink, I've got to talk to somebody who understands that, not somebody who goes, I know how you must feel because I'm that way with candy. No, you're not that way with candy. No, you've never been pulled over for an open container of nuts and chews in the car, all right? Ever. I appreciate the sentiment, but it's not my... It's, and I mean no disrespect to people who have that problem, but it's not my problem. And you don't understand what is really at stake. But if I talk to someone who does, if I can talk to a new person who understands that, or if I can talk to somebody who's got a lot more time than I do, then it's that connection that levels me out to where those emotions don't hurt anymore and I don't have to relieve them anymore. Because the relief has been in the connection. That's why I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. 
and I hope it stays that way because I have two little children now. I got married. This is, I'll run through this real quickly. Do I have to get down now? The lights haven't gone on yet, so I'm, I'm just going by the lights. Uh, okay. Um, but, uh, and I'm sure many of you have blocks to get home. But uh, um, I, uh, I was single for 16 years, sober, and I fell in love head over heels with a woman in my group, and I adored her. And, uh, and we got married, and we had two children, and then our marriage fell apart. And I won't say anything. I, I, that was a cheap shot before. I didn't mean that. Um, but because she, she is alcoholic, and she's not going to meetings, and she, she's going to need somebody's help at some point, I believe. And she's going to need maybe a woman in this room tonight. And I don't want to sully up the pool for her to get help that she would need as a fellow alcoholic. And I hope that maybe somebody in this room will have some time uh, to run into her and talk to her and have her relate to them. I hope that. I don't know if that's going to happen, but it's not my problem. But I have my two children now. I have a, f- a six-year-old son who's almost six and a four-year-old daughter. And these kids are the joy of my life, and I would never have been able to enjoy them without the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, without the inventories and the amends and the 12-step work and the spiritual connection of the 11th step to guide me along in dealing with these two impatient, energetic little critters. (laughs) And they are go, go, go. But I would not want anything different than what I've got from them. You know, my kids are amazing uh, to me. I'm sure your kids are amazing to you, but they're not as amazing as mine. Um, <laughs> and when, our, when my marriage fell apart, it, it really, really grieved me. I went through such a period of, I, and, I, and believe me, I had people, I had a neighbor who was a woman I worked with who had been one of, one of my bosses a few years ago, and I moved over to a different department. And she came into my office one day, and she's not an alcoholic, but she knew what I was going through. She walked in my office and dropped her key of her house on my desk and said, I got a, separate, a single bedroom at my house with an attached bathroom. You can stay there as long as you like. And, and I thanked her, and I went there. I stayed at her house for about a month and house sat her cats. And, uh, and then uh, a woman in my group said, come stay up at my house for a few months. Stay as long as you need. You know, so I went up there, and people were kind, and they came out of the woodwork. And I got to be with my children. I, I listened to the single men, the single fathers in AA, the guys who are divorced dads. I shouldn't say single, but divorced dads in AA who are completely devoted to their children, who taught me how to be consistent with them and be loving with them and to never say an unkind word about their mother to them. And I've kept to that, you know. And, and I've been able to be with my children on a consistent basis and have them in my life. And I know that they care about me. I don't know if they love me. I don't know if they know what love is, but they're there, and they know their father loves them. And just as, as people in AA have loved me. And I'm really, I've gotten more than I could ever pay back in Alcoholics Anonymous from AA people. Um, I went through a depression during those two years that I wound up going to the doctor. I was getting dizzy spells. I was having trouble driving. I was just, I went to see the doctor. He gave me a whole checkup took blood tests, took head checks, everything, and said, I got some good news and some bad news. I said, well, what's the bad news? And he goes, there's nothing wrong with you. And I said, well, what's the good news? He goes, there's nothing wrong with you. He said, what's going on in your life? And I said, well, I'm going through a divorce. And he said, uh, do you ever think about killing yourself? And I thought, you know, not today. Uh, but it's, it's 11, so I've got a long time to... No, but you know, you know how we are. I, I had to <laughs> listen to this. They ask us stupid questions, but you know, alcoholics. I think about killing myself all the time. It's not serious. I just walk along an overpass and think, I wonder what would happen if I just jumped over. I'm not. Now listen, 
I'm not going to do it. Uh, just out of courtesy to my fellow drivers, I'm not going to do it. Um, I don't want to have the last moment of my life spent having people drive by and go, asshole, out the window. You know, um, I don't want to end my life that way. Um, but but uh, people, I, I had jury duty a few years ago, and and the and the I dress exactly like I'm dressed tonight. I'm sitting, in the, I get called into the box. I'm sitting in the box. The guy in front of me has these big prison guns on him, and he's got a deadlo- dreadlocks on his head, but his head's shaved on the sides, and he he's got tattoos, and and he's tough looking. I mean, this guy's tough. And I'm sitting right behind him, and they said, "Is there anybody on this jury, potential jury, who?" Uh, is acquainted with any felons. His hand went up too, you know? And uh, then they asked, okay, juror number six, which was me, uh, how how are you acquainted with felons? And I said, well, some of my best friends are felons. They're ex-felons. They're no longer in that business, but they... uh, Really? How many? I said, maybe a (laughs) hundred. I'm not, I'm telling the truth. I'm not going to embarrass you in here, but then say, how many of you, how many of you in here are ex-felons? Don't raise your hand, but I I just, because you'll scare the hell out of the person next to you possibly. uh, (laughs) You see visitors take their purses and pull them up closer. Um, But... Anyway, they, they excused me from this. She said, how do you know these felons? And I said, well, I'm uh, in a fellowship with them. I don't want to break my anonymity for that cheap shot. But uh, and she said, really, how often do you attend this fellowship? And I thought, oh, you're going to be smart with me, are you? <laughs> I said, maybe four or five times a week for the last 17 years, because that's, that's how long it was at the time. She goes... Your Honor, I would like to ask a juror number six be excused from duty. And I said, fine. And I got up. And because we were told all the way through that don't take it personally if they boot you out of the jury. But I was pissed, you know. I walk out of there and I go over and check in with the jury room. And they said, well, you can just go and have lunch and come back later this afternoon. So I go off and I'm walking down to Starbucks and I call my sponsor, you know, because I'm irritated. They booted me off the jury because I said I knew felons. How am I ever going to get on a jury? I know everybody in here. That's not possible. So I'm talking to him, and I look up, and here comes the guy with the dreadlocks and the big guns, you know, and he's walking up, and, and I said goodbye to Bill, and I hung up the phone. I look at the guy, and he goes, you a friend of Bill's? <laughs> yeah, I am. And he goes, let's go get some coffee. <laughs> okay. As you wish, my brother. <laughs> and um, So we went in. We sat down. We sat down for an hour and had had coffee, talked, and, and watched the people come in, looking at us, wondering how we knew each other, you know. Uh, and we're sitting there laughing and chatting and having a good time, you know. And uh, and and I felt I felt better because there was somebody else who got rejected for the exact same reason I did, you know. And so. We are, you know, this is a fellowship. It's not a 12-step program. We're here to help each other. We're here to, be, to see recovery in action, not recovery by workbook or by remote control or, or recovery by Internet. We're here to see recovery eye to eye, to shore each other up and have a place where newcomers can come and hear the message of AA. Uh, I want to thank Bob again for having me. Thank you for being in my life, and I hope uh, for the best for all of you. Thanks. Thank you.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.